Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Good evening, everyone. At this hour, the Senate is wrapping up a third day of confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Once again, Republicans focused on dog whistle politics and, frankly, offensive false insinuations about her record, with Lindsey Graham and others resorting to interrupting, mansplaining and outright bullying. Through it all, Judge Jackson showed patience and resolve in defending her record. And we're going to have all the news from the hearing coming up shortly. But we begin the readout tonight with Russian dictator Vladimir Putin's humiliation on the battlefield as Russia's war on Ukraine enters its second month tomorrow. NATO now estimates that seven to 15,000 Russian troops have been killed in Ukraine. That's according to a NATO official who spoke to NBC News. And if you include the Russian troops who've been injured, captured or gone missing, the number could be as high as 30 to 40,000. Russian forces remain bogged down and stalled out along the front lines, which have barely advanced in a week. They continue to be repelled by Ukraine's more nimble fighting force, which has repeatedly managed to outmaneuver them despite being outnumbered and outgunned. Meanwhile, the Russian military cannot even meet the basic needs of their own soldiers. Western officials say Putin's forces are facing serious shortages of food, fuel and cold weather gear, and some are now suffering frostbite. Many soldiers were never told where they were going or what they were fighting for. Some units even abandoned their vehicles and equipment. In fact, their losses are now so significant, they may have lost their ability to keep up the fight. The New York Times reports that according to the Pentagon, Russia's combat power in Ukraine has dipped below 90 percent of its original force. Such heavy losses can leave units unable to carry out combat duties, according to U.S. officials. It comes as Ukrainian forces report that they have retaken a key town outside of Kyiv, part of a broader counteroffensive to drive back the invaders on multiple fronts. Additionally, Ukraine says it's claimed the lives of at least six Russian generals. And experts say that mounting toll could soon erode Russia's military effectiveness. The discontent among Russian troops was captured in an intercepted phone call released today by Ukraine's security forces. Complaining about the operation, one Russian soldier says even Chechnya was better. At least it was clear. It's just BS here. Our own plane dropped a bomb on us. This is madness, he says. Now we are circled. They fire at us from all directions. All of this reveals the staggering miscalculation by Putin, who reportedly believed Ukraine would collapse without a fight. Now, the New York Times is reporting that the slow going and the heavy toll of Putin's war are setting off questions about his military's planning capability. Their lack of progress is so apparent that a blame game has begun among, among some Russian supporters of the war. As a former Russian intelligence colonel said on Monday, Russia had made a, catastroph a, a catastrophically incorrect assessment of Ukraine's forces. Bloomberg also reports that an advisor to Putin has stepped down and left the country, citing his opposition to the war in Ukraine, according to two people familiar with the situation. This comes as Western sanctions cripple Russia's economy, prompting runs on basic consumer staples like sugar which is in such short supply that scenes like this one have reportedly played out in numerous grocery stores across that country. 
And after being closed for more than three weeks, the Russian stock market is set to partially reopen tomorrow. Though foreigners are barred from trading and short selling has been prohibited. Joining me now is former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, William Taylor, who is the vice president of Russia and Europe for the U.S. Institute of Peace. And Admiral James Stavridis, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander and MSNBC Chief International Security and Diplomacy Analyst, with whom I'd like to begin. Um, General Stavridis, this sounds like a full-scale disaster. And it's one that, uh, that I wonder if, in your view, just looking at it strategically, did Putin look at what happened in Afghanistan, where the government collapsed immediately and the Taliban, with, you know, with very little in terms of strategic ability, was able to just take over that country and take over the capital— was he lulled into a false sense of security by that or something else? Because it seems like he was warned. This is from The New York Times. In January, according to The New York Times, the head of a group serving and, uh, of serving and retired Russian military officers declared that invading Ukraine would be pointless and extremely dangerous. It would kill thousands, he said, make Russians and Ukrainians enemies for life, risk a war with NATO, and threaten the existence of Russia itself as a state. Can you explain, from your expert point of view, how Putin could have gotten this so wrong? He got it wrong because he has spent 20 years isolating himself from the leadership just below him. They're scared to death of him. And you see it every time one of these faux conferences are held. Putin sits at this long table. It looks like a gondola from Venice. And his his minions are arrayed at the other end, kind of responding to it. Um, they're afraid to give him the bad news. And by the way, let me just draw a line under something you said, Joy, in the excellent summary you provided. Seven to 15,000 dead Russians. Let's call it 10,000, I think is actually conservative. But that's many more than the U.S. suffered, killed in action in both Iraq and Afghanistan in 20 years. They've lost many more than that in the last four weeks. And so I think this is a catastrophic for Vladimir Putin. Where it goes next, we'll uh, have to wait and see what happens in terms of the responses. But certainly um, this is a disaster. And I'll close with this. But, you know, admirals love nothing better than to criticize generals. Um, <laughs> this is bad generalship. His generals have failed and failed badly and there will be consequences in his inner circle, I predict. And Admiral, I think I said general uh, in regard to you, so I, I, I apologize for that. I like to give everyone their, their correct bona fides because uh, you've certainly earned them. Um, I have to say with you for just one moment, because given the, the, the gross miscalculation on his part militarily and the fact that they've been unable to even hold cities that they've taken, that they're unable to resupply, that essentially their troops are stuck and in some cases starving and freezing, how, in your view, does this end? How do we get past this stalemate? Because the, 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 the Ukrainian forces are obviously doing a superior job, but there's still a genocide taking place against civilians, which now officially the U.S. has said it's war crimes. How does this end? It, it is war crimes. And what has happened is Putin has gone from plan A, blitzkrieg, decapitate the Ukrainian government, probably literally, um, that's failed. Plan B is 15th century warfare. It's encircled these cities and pound them <clears> down. And how does it end, Joy? Uh, in the end, it'll probably conclude with a negotiation of some kind. Certainly, Putin is not going to just give up and leave Ukraine. Um, that has to be negotiated. That is coming, I'd say, in two months or so as he really bleeds dry and his forces lose their combat effectiveness. <clears throat>
And, and, you know, Admiral Taylor, in that time, a lot of Ukrainians are likely going to die because, you know, as the admiral has said, I mean, at this point, it is a Russian military war against civilians while their own troops are just sort of flagging. Right. And so in that two months, you're going to have a lot of death, a lot of destruction. Is there anything more that, in your view, NATO can do? President Biden is headed there. He's going to be talking with NATO. They're going to be meeting. It's a very quickly put together meeting. Is there anything that NATO can do short of joining what is feels like World War III? Joy, NATO can increase the flow of weapons. Um, the Ukrainian military, as you've said, as Admiral Starita said, uh, they're fighting heroically and 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 with great vigor. And they are spending a lot of their weapons. They are shooting a lot of their ammunition. They need more. They need more of all of the kinds of weapons that we've been talking about over the last month. Um, and uh, the other thing that they can do is tighten the noose of sanctions. You showed how the Russian economy is already hurting. It needs to hurt more. There needs to be more people who are feeling that. So both of those things, Joy, can happen in this trip that President Biden is on to Brussels and on to Poland. And we know that uh, President Zelensky is going to also address the NATO summit tomorrow. So that is going to happen. We're going to be watching for that. I want to stay with you for for, for a moment, for, uh, Mr. Ambassador, because so we know that the crackdown is intensifying inside of Russia on dissent, on protesters, tens of thousands of people being arrested. Um, the chief political opponent, um, Alexei Navalny, now sentenced to nine additional years in prison. Um, you know, the, he's using sort of a fear campaign internally inside of the country while their country's being starved economically. It feels like sort of there's 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 nowhere else for Putin to go but gone. Do, do you get a sense, just looking at it from the outside looking in, that Putin's reign is becoming unstable? Joy is possible. It's it's I wouldn't say it's likely. Um, I would say it is possible. You quoted a letter. Uh, from senior retired military earlier on. Part of the letter that was not in your excerpt there raised exactly that issue that you're talking about. That is, these generals and this one lead general said, Mr. President, President Putin, you could jeopardize your own regime. You could have destabilization. You could have, he even said the word, uprising. So there are concerns, Joy, uh, among generals uh, who are who are at that point recommending, demanding, pleading with President Putin not to invade because they thought it might destabilize his own regime. So, yes, it could happen. I would sad to say it's probably unlikely. And Admiral Stavridis, just from the NATO point of view, it feels like Putin is getting the opposite of what he wanted. Um, you're hearing even Germany talking about maybe bolstering um, its own defense. Um, it doesn't appear that he would have the, the, the capability of attacking any other countries. If he's down to less than 90 percent of his forces, he poured everything into Ukraine. Hasn't Putin actually weakened himself really on the world stage? Because now everyone knows their lack of capability. Everyone understands their lack of preparation and ability to do what it is that they claim that they want to do. They, they're not going to be a very uh, successful expansionist power if they can't even get done what he's demanded they do in Ukraine. Hasn't he now placed nope. himself in a position where everybody knows he's weak? Joy, that is precisely correct. The, the ironic thing about this is right about now, Vladimir Putin's head ought to be exploding with frustration. He is getting everything he doesn't want. Germany just added uh, 100 billion euros to their annual defense budget. That's $120 billion. Russia's entire defense budget 
is only $70 billion. He's gotten the Germans to spend a fortune on defense. And he's got all of the allies. We're going to hear more from the president over the next couple of days, moving troops to the borders of the Russian Federation, strengthening. And finally, Joy, look outside NATO. I wouldn't be surprised to see, for example, Finland and Sweden, two superb combat powers, powerful economies, techno-democracies come knocking at the door to join NATO. That NATO membership card looks pretty good these days. Putin is creating exactly his own worst nightmare. And I wonder, Ambassador Taylor, you know, for China, this feels like an opportunity uh, that, you know, if there are going to be two sort of great powers and if you're playing sort of that great power Game of Thrones politics, you know, there's no reason for China to help save Russia. Why save them? Right. Um, you know, there's no reason for OPEC to save um, to save Russia. There's, I mean, to save Russia. There's no reason for anyone to save him. I wonder if that puts the world in a position to maybe start to think about some of the other conflicts that he is uh, prolonging, like as if, in, including in Syria. Um, is there possibility now that we can start to reduce his lethality in places like Syria and other places and isolate him even further? Joy, you're of course right. And one concrete example of exactly that is he's pulling people back, soldiers back from Syria. He's pulling people, mm. his, his soldiers from Syria who are engaged there. He needs them on the front. He needs them in Ukraine. He's looking for Libyans. He's looking for private private firms, the Wagner Group. Uh, he's got a strain. His military, as you've just described, is under pressure. They are not. They're not doing well. They're not supplying themselves well. They're not performing well. And he's looking for other ways to boost the number of his soldiers. So, yes, I think you're exactly right, Joy. This is uh, this is an opportunity. It is. Before we go, I do want to take a moment to acknowledge the passing of Madeleine Albright, um, one of the great women um, of American um, history and um, the first woman who was secretary of state. She has died at the age of 84. I want to give each of you, um, starting with you, Ambassador Taylor, an opportunity to reflect on her life uh, and on her legacy. Joy, this was a true American. Uh, this was a true American who led, she guided, she advised. She was a wonderful Secretary of State. She was wonderful after she retired. So she led a delegation uh, of international election observers to Ukraine in 2014. I was one of the election observers. I remember, Joy, she called me. I was in Kherson um, observing the elections, and she was in Cape. She called us. Um, on the phone just to check in. This is a woman who is a hero. Yeah, indeed. And she also warned the world about the uh, spreading of autocracy. Um, Admiral Stavridis, I want to give you the last word here uh, to reflect on this uh, great woman and her passing. She was a mentor to me. She was a tough lady who could stand toe to toe with anybody. She was about five feet tall, but mm. she towered over everybody I know. And she also... Uh, had a great sense of humor. She wore beautiful pins everywhere she went that kind of were set to play with the mind of the person she would sit down with. And she was an expert on NATO. And when we rewrote the NATO strategy in 2010, the first person we reached out to was Madeleine Albright for her strategic advice. She spoke six European languages fluently. And finally, as my, my dear friend, Ambassador Bill Taylor said, true American. She's an American story. She is uh, the child of immigrants, a fascinating backstory in her own life. Um, boy, we are going to miss her. 
the great women wear pins. Uh, our friend Jill Winebanks is another one who wears wonderful pins with fabulous messages. Uh, her pins were—they're uh, not the biggest part of her story, but they're one of my favorite things uh, about her. Thank you both um, for joining us in that reflection on her life. Uh, Ambassador William Taylor, retired Admiral James Stavridis, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout. Cheers. We're going to go live to Ukraine, where the humanitarian disaster grows worse by the hour. Plus, the Republicans' QAnon strategy as they confront a woman of unimpeachable character. Child pornography. Uh, Children and sexually compromising situations. Child pornography. Possession cases. Looking at sexual images of children in the most disgusting way. Senator. So if you're listening to my voice today and you're on a computer looking at child pornography. Contrast that mess to Senator Cory Booker's moment of sanity and humanity. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. 10 million Ukrainians have been forced from their homes and are on the move. But the war is going nowhere fast. The only outcome to all these is more suffering, more destruction, and more horror as far as the eye can see. This war is unwinnable. Sooner or later, it will have to move from the battlefield to the peace table. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres has described Russia's assault as a living hell for the people of Ukraine. If you want to see what hell looks like, consider the besieged city of Mariupol, where Putin's invading forces continue to bombard with heartless indifference. President Volodymyr Zelensky told the Italian parliament that there is nothing left of the city, and yet they continue to fight. Just yesterday, the city rejected an ultimatum from Russia to surrender. Hundreds of thousands are believed to be trapped inside buildings with no access to food, water, power or heat. On the country's southern front, on the country's southern front lines, Ukrainian fighters in Mykolaiv has, have delayed a potential Russian assault on the critical port of Odessa. Ukrainian forces north of Mykolaiv in the small town of Vostnesensk, with the help of an army of local volunteers, have also beaten back Russian forces by blowing up a key bridge and driving the Russian army back to the east. Russian forces are keen to capture the town because it, too, will facilitate their march toward Odessa and the major nuclear and its major nuclear power plant. The United Nations Human Rights Office has recorded more than 900 civilian deaths and roughly 1,500 injured since Putin's invasion started almost a month ago. And with me now is NBC News correspondent Cal Perry in Lviv, where apparently the air raid sirens are just picking up. Um, tell us what's going on, um, where you are and around the country as you know it, Cal. 
Well, Joy, here in the West, we're on the front lines of this humanitarian catastrophe. 10 million people displaced, 4 million of them heading into Europe already, and that's just in one month of war. In the capital tonight, we have this real moment, I think, of importance where Ukrainian forces are not just stopping uh, Russian troops. They're actually pushing them back. In the eastern part of the city, we understand they've broken through Russian lines by about 10 kilometers. Um, that is really important because we have these huge numbers of Russian dead and wounded and being captured, taking POWs. And that number is likely to skyrocket as the fighting in the capital now goes back and forth. In the eastern part of the country, what you're seeing on your screen is playing out where civilians are being punished by Russian forces. The city of Mariupol is disappearing. It is being shelled 24 hours a day, not just by land anymore, but also by the sea. And it looks as though those forces on that sea are moving their way towards Odessa. In the north, in Kharkiv, it's a similar situation. You have hospitals operating only in the basements. You have this constant shelling. You have civilians who can't get above ground. And we just still, Joy, we don't have a good idea of the number of civilians that are being killed because the rescue personnel that you see in front of you on your screen are not able to get to some of these sites because the sites themselves are then being shelled. Add to that, you have the targeting of food supplies. You have the targeting of medical workers. You have the targeting of these uh, civilian areas, these ambulances. There have been 10 hospitals destroyed in the first month of the war. More than 80 others have been at least damaged. It is what is led the U.S. to declare that Russia is committing war crimes. We've seen that play out on the ground here in the past month. We've heard it from the Ukrainian president as he calls for that no-fly zone. He's been pointing out these human rights violations and these war crimes that Russia, as he said, is carrying out systematically here in the country of Ukraine, Joy. And very quickly, Cal, do we know at this point, we know that in Odessa uh, and also in Chernobyl, there are these big nuclear plants um, that have been the source of some of the really terrifying news that we've seen coming out. Um, do we know if those plants are secure? We know that um, the latter is in Russian hands. It does seem that Ukrainians have been able to protect Odessa thus far. So we know that the power is onto the Chernobyl site, but it's been taken off the grid. So there's no real-time monitoring on behalf of the IAEA, that plant that you're mentioning near Odessa, under Russian control, as is the one in Zaporizhia. We understand the one in Zaporizhia is being used as a base by Russian soldiers. And again, this is a tactic we've seen play out on the ground. The Russian soldiers are using hospitals as bases, they're using schools as bases, and at least in one case, they're using Europe's biggest nuclear power plant as a forward operating base to carry out uh, their operations, Joy. Terrifying. Uh, Cal Perry, thank you so much. Uh, stay safe. I want to bring in Jean Belenuk, member of the Ukrainian parliament and an Olympic gold medalist. Um, MP Belenuk, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I want to start by asking you the, that question. Um, how concerned are you as an MP um, that Russia would try to do something to destabilize the nuclear facilities in Ukraine. Oh, thank you for your question. Uh, uh, now, all uh, nuclear station under under, under uh, Russian control. That's why we don't control this uh, location. And uh, if they um, decided to destabilization situation inside our country, they will do this. You must understand because we uh, we don't control our our station in Chernobyl and near Zaporozhye and Nergodar. This is the biggest nuclear station in Europe. 
And I, I, I am also concerned, and I think the world is concerned, um, about the question of whether or not Russia would start using chemical weapons and even nuclear, uh, tactical nuclear weapons um, out of desperation because they are losing. How much of a concern is that to you? Oh, it's, uh, I can uh, answer for sure, but uh, I think so, because now um, on the land, we beat uh, Russian army and uh, they're nervous. That's why they can, uh, they can uh, attack from the sky and uh, use chemical weapons and nuclear weapons. That's why uh, we need to support and we need to, to ask every time our partner for help, for help for uh, our country. Because first, uh, difficult for us, it's a situation with, with our sky. Every yeah. time Russian army attack from sky, all the city. If you uh, watch this destroy inside our uh, countries, only bomb attack from the sky because our our army, our uh, soldiers uh, do everything for protect our country on the land, and they can do. Uh, can do a lot on the land, but uh, Russian army has a very good uh, aviation, a lot of uh, aircraft who every day bombed our country. We need to help, we need to uh, military equip, uh, we need to um, military forces from our partners for uh, protect our land because after Ukraine, I think for sure they attack Europe and they go forward. And sir, let me ask you this, um, and we and I will note for our audience, um, the first shipment of U.S. arms um, of the $800 billion package that was approved here is soon to start heading to Ukraine, which is good news. But I want to ask you about the people of Mariupol, which we've seen the devastation in Mariupol and other cities as well. How much access do people at this point in Ukraine have to food, um, to shelter, um, to the basic things that people need to survive, especially in a city like Mariupol? Now, Mariupol is blocked. That's why we uh, have a huge problem inside this, uh, um, this city. It's the uh, biggest problem for uh, Ukraine now is Mariupol because uh, our humanitarian help can uh, in, invite into the city. They can uh, give us to change, do this, and help uh, Mariupol people who stay without any water, without any food, and every time they attack from the sky this, uh, this city. Our soldiers, stay inside this city in Mariupol, but uh, they can do anything on the land, even Mariupol too, 
but every time they attack from the sky. And we mm. can't now to unblock this, this city for the help our people, our Ukrainian people who uh, who stay there, who located there, and who uh, with a huge problem inside. Ukrainian Parliament member Jean Belenyuk, um, thank you so much. Um, we are all praying for you, for Ukraine, and thank you for your time. Please stay safe. Uh, and still ahead, Republican performance art reaches a new level of shamelessness at Judge Jackson's Supreme Court nomination hearings. You'd call these red meat dog whistle attacks thinly veiled if they weren't so blatantly obvious. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. It's Monday. It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Day three of the Supreme Court nomination hearings for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson just wrap up, wrapped up in the last minute. Senators have spent more than 23 hours questioning and in some cases interrogating the nominee. Through all of it, two things are absolutely clear. One, Judge Jackson has quietly and calmly shown her bona fides to be the next associate justice and first black woman on the Supreme Court, period. And two, the Republicans, knowing that to be true, spent their time blaring a dog whistle to rally their base for the November elections with a focus on the QAnon conspiracists and white nationalist MAGA fanatics who've become the activist wing of the once grand old party. Never has the term child pornography been used more in a confirmation hearing than we heard today. So let's focus on actual child pornography cases. Child pornographers. Child pornography Seven cases. prepubescent child pornography images. Pedophiles who produce child pornography. Let's go back to the child pornography cases. Okay, now that topic led to one of the more heated exchanges with Senator Ted Cruz, who, despite the recent inclement weather in Texas, managed to be here in the nation's capital and not in Cancun, getting into a bitter back and forth with committee chairman Dick Durbin that went on for several minutes. Senator, I've said what I'm going to say about these cases. No one case can stand in for a judge's entire record. Okay, but I'm discussing and every one I, of the cases. So I if, if you're not going to explain it— Senator, gonna, would you please let her respond? No, not if she's not going to answer well, my question. Well, if you're just going to give a speech, then uh, and, you and, shouldn't and, engage in And you, you are not taking my time. If you want to filibuster, you're, you're welcome to do so, but do I it on your own I would at least time. give you an opportunity to speak, and you should give her an opportunity to respond. 
And in order to stoke the MAGA base, we heard all the hot-button cultural wedge issues, regardless of the relevancy to Judge Jackson's actual role in the court. And despite the important fact that none of these senators has or plans to legislate on any of it, because to be clear, they do not care about any of it, nor would they use their power to do anything about it. But they know their base gets really excited about critical race theory and and questions about racist babies and accusing black people of being soft on crime and about right-wing Christian victimology and QAnon. To that end, Lindsey Graham even asked Judge Jackson to rate her religiosity on a scale of one to 10. The genius out of Tennessee asked her to define the word woman, a question no previous Supreme Court nominee has ever been asked. And let's not forget the airing of old grievances and the score settling about hearings held for their past nominees, something Senator Graham complained about for the third day in a row. Senator Sheets had nothing to do with the cause. No, but I'm asking her about how how she may feel about what y'all did. Just answer the question. Senator, I don't have any comment on what procedures took place in this body regarding what you think Justice about the Kavanaugh here? Kavanaugh, what I'd like finish? to answer. And for all the posturing and performance art for TV that we have seen coming from the Senate Republicans, as our friend Kurt Bardella put it, at the end of the day, these Republicans will just be a footnote as Judge Katanji Brown Jackson makes history and leaves them in it. More on Judge Jackson's confirmation hearing next. Today, two of the most craven of all Senate Republicans, Josh Hawley, you know, fist in the air Josh, and slaveholder descendant Tom Cotton, reprised their QAnon baiting smears against Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, drilling down on her sentence in one particular case involving child pornography. As a testament to her unimpeachable qualifications, however, Judge Jackson did not back down. There's your signature over there, Judge. You really yes. don't. You really don't remember, what? Senator. That is a very, very common thing that judges do. I've sentenced over a hundred people. I understand you've done a lot, Judge, but no, none of them have been the centerpiece of your hearing for the last two days. Do you really? Do you really expect this committee to believe that you don't remember what happened in this Hawkins case when it came back before you? Yes, Senator, I I do expect you to believe that's my testimony. Well, I I don't find it credible, Judge. Judge, you gave him three months. My question is, do you regret it or not? Senator, what I regret is that in a hearing about my qualifications to be a justice on the Supreme Court, we've spent a lot of time focusing on this small subset of my sentences. Hmm. Joining me now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney and professor at the University of Alabama School of Law and Charles Coleman, Jr., civil rights attorney and a former prosecutor. Uh, I don't even know where to go first on this, except to say, and I, and I, will, I will throw this out first to you, Joyce. Maya Wiley tweeted that the idea of that man, Tom Cotton, telling a sitting federal judge, twice confirmed with the votes of Lindsey Graham, by the way, that she's a liar, to say, why should, do you expect us to believe you, was one of the most offensive, Maya Wiley said, things that she has ever seen in a confirmation hearing. 
I want to throw that to you as well. To tell this woman who is a sitting federal judge that she's a liar, it was a you lie moment for me. Uh, what about you? Um, I feel the same way. So much of this was political theater. It had nothing to do with the judge's qualifications. And the real loser was the American people who were tuned in for this hearing. I was stunned to receive text messages from friends all afternoon who I would not have thought of as people who watched Supreme Court confirmation hearings commenting on what was going on. And where Judge Jackson was at her finest, where she really shines, is her ability to explain important concepts in American law in a way that's accessible to people who aren't lawyers. When she talked about the Fourth Amendment right to be free from unlawful search and seizure, or when she explained the right to counsel under Gideon versus Wainwright, and what these Republican senators deprived the country of in a very meaningful way was an opportunity to hear from her. I'm glad that there'll just be a footnote in history here because we have decades of her brilliant opinions to look forward to. She will make the law so much more accessible and the court so much more readily understandable. Ultimately, we win despite their shameful performances this week. No, indeed. And, you know, Charles, Charles uh, Coleman, I, I also was getting texts all um, all day and, and have been for the last three days for people who, similarly to what Joyce is saying, would normally not sit there and watch all day a confirmation hearing, um, as I would because I'm a nerd. Uh, and, and the outrage is real. And a lot of it was about the blatant disrespect. I tweeted that they were treating her like a black shopper being, that they were following through the store. Just the ultimate disrespect for her as a human being, as a judge, the fact that her family was there, all because, in Lindsey Graham's view, apparently this whole hearing was payback for Kavanaugh, who nobody told him to sexually violate his high school friend or those girls in college and get accused of it credibly. That is not the fault of Kataji Brown-Jackson. But apparently, according to Lindsey Graham, she needs to pay for that. Um, I'm just going to let you say your thoughts. Well, you know, I think that that's a very interesting point to start with, because I have looked at this as very much so a tale of two confirmations. If you look at the demeanor that Kentaji Brown Jackson has displayed throughout her entire confirmation hearing, she's been poised, she's been unflappable, and she's been brilliant. Imagine if she had had the same demeanor that Brett Kavanaugh displayed, the same disdain to just completely rebuff questions for senators. At one point, if you recall, during his confirmation, he literally said, I drink beer because I like beer. He was being questioned about legitimate allegations of sexual assault, a criminal act. And here you have a woman, a black woman, who was being questioned about things that one decision and one one sentencing out of literally hundreds. We're not talking about something criminal. And yet and still she's expected to have the level of poise, the level of demeanor that she's sitting there listening to questions that are absurd and that are ridiculous. And she's still smiling and she's still maintaining her composure. I think when you consider how that plays out with respect to the fact that they can't really attack her record and they're using this as political grandstanding, it says a lot about where our political discourse is, Joy. If you know that you're going to get more donations, more votes, more media, more camera time by mm -hmm. by being disagreeable in a space where there is not, there's no reason to be disagreeable, then what does that say about your ability to get things done as a legislator? Well, they don't legislate because they're all, they're just performers and they're trying right now, Joyce, to perform, as you said, for the for their base. Right. For the QAnon people, they're constantly saying uh, child pornography because they know that triggers QAnon and they want them to vote Republican. I mean, this is very simple. We know what they're doing. But I'm struck by the fact 
that a woman who is a judge, who is already a very esteemed um, legal mind that everyone agrees because they keep putting her on the bench, on the federal bench, she was treated essentially like Anita Hill. She was treated like Christine Blasey Ford. Because she is a woman, she could not act like Kavanaugh. And, and I think what that says to women, to women who are lawyers, to black women, is that the standard for us is that we have to always behave as an adult. The standard for white men is they can behave as a child and still get as far or further than we can. They sent that message very clear. Lindsey Graham, all the little mansplainers, all the little Confederacy crew that really sounded like they were in the 19th century still. They, they can behave that way because there's no constraints on them because of who they are. Your thoughts? You know, there was the moment where Lindsey Graham questioned her this afternoon, only questioned is the wrong word to use because he just continued to make a speech. He'd ask her a question. She'd start to answer and two or three words in, he'd cut her off again. And it went on and on and on. And when Dick Durbin, the chair, finally called him on it, he looked aghast. Lindsey Graham said, no, she just won't answer my questions. And I frankly don't know how she maintained the composure just not to go across the table at him at that point. If you were looking for evidence of whether she had the appropriate judicial demeanor to be a Supreme Court justice, well, she certainly established that in spades this week. But, yeah, absolutely. You know, ultimately, mm -hmm. what you go what you got to worry about here, though, is how these senators treat these women. I was glad to see her not just sit there with a smile on her face. I was glad when those moments of the steel in her spine shone through and, and she sort of permitted herself to show a little bit of impatience on her face because ultimately women shouldn't be treated like this. We shouldn't tolerate it. I hope one of the conversations that follows on to this sorry excuse for a confirmation hearing is a conversation about how she was treated why she was treated that way. And of course, that is part of the importance of putting the first black Supreme Court justice, who's a woman, onto the court, because yep. when you have a seat at the table, it changes how people have to behave. And, and we also know that they don't care about women, because, you know, if they care about porn so much, one of their favorite justices, Clarence Thomas, was accused of foisting porn on women who didn't want to see it and sexually harassing them. They think he's great. They never said the words Gates. They never said the words uh, Jim Jordan. They don't care about women. They don't care about that at all. Uh, they don't, they, Donald Trump. They, they love and adore him and completely worship him. They don't care about women. We know that's true. And they're not legislating on any of these issues that they were mentioned. They will never try to craft a bill on any of it because they don't give a damn about it. Let me go to something substantive. Amy Klobuchar brought up something really important, which is the shadow docket, which has just been used again, um, Charles, to basically overturn the governor, uh, Governor Evers' um, veto of a, of a map, of a, of a redistricting map. And so there's real issues going on here. The shadow docket is an issue. Um, how important do you think it would be to add, um, you know, Katanji Brown, uh, Brown Jackson to the court, given the fact that they are still doing all this madness and they can still do it when she's there? I think it's incredibly important because as there continues to be conversation about the desire for some to expand the bench, um, right now, with a 6-3 minority in favor of conservatives, progressives need as much assistance and support as they can, as there continues to be a very significant assault on voters' rights throughout the country. This is not the only one that we're going to see in terms of the shadow docket from Utah coming up and being uh, something that was stopped. But in other spaces as well, you can anticipate that we're going to see more and more of this continue to come before the court in different forms. And so it's absolutely critical from uh, the a standpoint of pr the preservation of democratic rights 
rights and voting rights everywhere that we get her confirmed and we get her confirmed quickly. The last thing I will say is that if these men really cared about women, they wouldn't also support the idea, and teenagers and kids, they wouldn't support the idea of minors who are raped being forced to bear the child of their rapist and having the families of rapists able to sue women and teenage girls. They don't care about women and girls, period. Um, Joyce Vance and Charles Conlin, thank you both very much. Up next, we have learned a lot over the past three days about the brilliant legal mind of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, but it was Senator Cory Booker's questioning that showed us her beautiful heart as well. Stay with us. After three days of ugly, vicious attacks on Judge Jackson from Republicans, Senator Cory Booker took us to church. Take a look. You got here how every black woman in America who's gotten anywhere has done. By being <laughs> like Ginger Rogers said, I did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards in heels. <laughs> and, and so I, I'm just sitting here saying nobody's stealing my joy. Nobody's going to make me angry, especially not people that are called in a conservative magazine demagogic for what they're bringing up that just doesn't hold water. I see my ancestors and yours. Nobody's gonna steal the joy of that woman in the street or the calls that I'm getting or the texts. Nobody's gonna steal that joy. You have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. Your hero is Constance Baker Motley, mine. She has sat on my desk for my offices that I've held. She's my icon of America. Her name is Harriet Tubman. There is a love in this country that is extraordinary. You admitted it about your parents. They loved this nation, even though there were laws preventing them from getting together. When they were loving, there were laws in this country that would have prevented you from marrying your husband. It wasn't that long ago. It was last generation. But they didn't stop loving this country, even though this country didn't love them back. You can get an amen. Thank you, Senator Cory Booker and Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. We needed that. And that's tonight's readout. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.